Our scripture text of focus this morning is Mark's account of Palm Sunday, as it's called. Turn there in your Bibles to Mark 11, or you have it before you on the insert. The text is there. We read this passage or one of the accounts from one of the Gospels the week before Easter every year. Of course, this week we have some special observances with it being uh, the week of the Lord's Passion as we remember this time. Of course, every Lord's Day, um, we're here because of the risen Jesus. So that's true that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But um, with the tradition of the church, we've just uh, looked forward to an Easter Sunday where we really focus uh, in a special way on the resurrection of Jesus and what it means. And so some special events today, Palm Sunday, we focus on when Jesus entered Jerusalem for that final time. You know, over the course of his life, uh, over 30 times, he would have gone into Jerusalem with his family for Passover. He went more than that, but at least for those times, during this same time of the year that we're reading about. And if you think about it, Jesus' earthly ministry is about, uh, at least his public ministry, is about 156 weeks, three years. And in that time frame, um, you have the whole of the New Testament devoted to, a third of it devoted to just one week, this week that we uh, study starting today and then through on into next Easter Sunday. Don't forget, Friday night, we have a special Good Friday service where we read Scripture passages that walk us through the process of Christ's crucifixion, um, and then it ends with Him in the tomb, um, and we sing hymns that relate to We take the Lord's Supper. We hear a meditation from the Word. That's Good Friday at 7. And then Easter Sunday, we have uh, that celebration of Jesus' resurrection and also a celebratory meal between services. Unusual for us, but we have this brunch and look forward to that as well. It's a special week of consideration, and I hope you will really in a special way consider what Jesus has done for us and how it has been certified, it's been verified, it's true because he is raised again and seated at the right hand of his Father. So we look at Mark 11 today together. I'll read verse 1 through 11. I want you to see this passage from two different perspectives. Don't let it get old just because you've read it before. Think of it from the perspective of God's will being worked out, his perfect plan taking place. That's the perspective. That's the most important perspective as we look at this account. On the front level, this passage is about God fulfilling his plan of redemption with every particular prophecy being fulfilled by Christ many of them fulfilled in this account. On the secondary level, and still important, is something that the Scripture teaches us over and over again, and we see it in this story. Our perspective, when we see an event, is often skewed. Uh, We don't see the whole of God's will in many events that happen in our lives. This story reminds us of that. On a secondary level, we learn once again how God's plan is always better than man's plan. With that, please hear as I read God's inspired and inerrant word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, and tie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing at tying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, each year we open the Bible to one of the accounts of this momentous event. That day when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the, the same time that thousands of lambs were being brought into the city for the Passover sacrifices. Little did most people know that Jesus was also entering as the final Passover lamb. Please impress us again with your providence that shaped this event to fulfill many prophecies with the end goal of securing the redemption of sinners like us. Lord, on an additional level, I pray that you would remind each person here, remind us afresh about the wisdom of your plans, even when they don't seem to make sense to us on the surface. Help us to know that your plans are always, always better than our expectations and hopes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the quotes that I like to uh, remind people of from Martin Luther, <clears throat> one that's less noted uh, is his statement about the way people are motivated by their hopes. Luther said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. I mean, think about this. Everything, when you get up in the morning, what keeps you going or has you go throughout the day are the hopes and the expectations you have for what the day will bring. Um, Whatever you do as a vocation, there's some hope tied to satisfaction or provision. Um, as parents, we have hopes that help us to carry out the difficult parts of parenting. As students in school, you hope that by this hard work that you're doing, it's going to pay off in some fashion for you in your life. In relationships, we have hopes for what those relationships will look like. Uh, we are motivated by hopes and expectations. He's right. Everything that is done in the world is done by hope. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are you expecting? These are all questions that would have been in the minds of normal people who would have been there on that day when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. The account before us is a picture of different hopes meeting in one very meaningful scene. Jesus had hopes and expectations about what he was entering for. They are the most important. The people had their ideas about what this meant. On one level, the story is about fulfilled prophecy and divine redemptive purpose. On the other, it's yet another example of human expectations being inferior to God's great plans, which should bring us more encouragement. We're reminded afresh that God's plan is always better than ours, and our aims and our expectations are never measured up to how great things really are by God's hand. Let's look at the opening verses and we'll see how it is that Jesus acts with particular and exact purpose in everything he does. This is how God works. Verse 1 to verse 6 proves again that God has a purpose for everything. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, <clears throat> right off the bat, that simple statement describes something that had been a long time in the making. The purpose of Jesus was ultimately to go to Jerusalem. His public ministry 
was all built towards this steady movement towards this final approach to Jerusalem. This is the time he will come and do the prophetic work, the redemptive work that he'd been called to do. So it's a simple statement, but recognize it means now the time has come. So it's with purpose. Verse 1 says, When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So he's just outside of Jerusalem, kind of in a township right outside, looking at Jerusalem, ready to make his entrance. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Every particular instruction there has purpose, and it's also a show of God's work in his Son to manifest this divine attribute. Now, when Jesus became man, um, he gave up independent access to his attributes. doesn't mean he stopped being God. just meant for the time and for his period of the work of redemption, the Father um, oversaw the Son's knowledge to some degree, and in this case, we see how he, is, he reveals to his son that there will be this cult. And that's, that's a special thing. This is, it's, not the, it's not normal to have a cult of this value. They were, very, they were prized animals. When you read in the Old Testament about how Abraham was rich, part of how he was rich is how many donkeys he had, how many colts he had. And this is a full one that had not yet been used for anything of labor or carried anything of any value yet. This thing was still pure in that sense. And Jesus, by divine knowledge, knows exactly where it will be, and he's even able to forecast the kind of thing that would be asked. Verse 2 again, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. Now that's that's a bold thing to say. You're just going to go in and grab somebody's valuable animal. I mean, um, there is a person, I don't know who, who they are, but I go to the Walmart over here, and they own a Lamborghini. And they park their Lamborghini all the time. i got to say, I'm sometimes tempted. Not, I wouldn't say I would go up and just tell them, the Lord has use for this. Can I drive it? But it is, a, I mean, the, the doors go up like this and everything. I'm not, I, I should not covet something like that, that worldly machine. But i got to say, when I see it, it's, I get this feeling. What if I just tried, if I wore that hat that has the priest thing on the top, and I said, uh, you know, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. That's what I would say to them. Oh, that's funny. It's unusual. But, you know, to tell his disciples to go in the first century down to town and start taking somebody's animal. That, that's, that's their money. That's their stuff. That's important. Verse 3, he forecasts that they're probably all nervous about doing what he just said. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Jesus is informed by God's will and acts according to his divine purpose. Every particular thing that Jesus does his knowledge of something, informing the disciples, telling them what to do if something is asked of them, every bit of it has purpose. Now, we sometimes think of God's sovereignty and his power over things as being just the big things. But that's impossible without the little things being under his watch, care, and control as well. So while we're looking at a, an important, momentous part of redemption history, every part and every detail of your life is understood and has purpose by God. Uh, it doesn't, there's not stuff that falls out of the pale of his concern. We know this by his actions and activities, and especially by this account. Every detail of this story is according to purpose. Verse 4, And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. They did exactly as he said. 
And sure enough, verse 5, some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said. They said, the Lord has need of it. We'll send it back immediately. And they let them go. Just as Jesus told them, every detail known by Jesus, planned by God, the whole of this event is a picture of God's purposes being fulfilled. You know, that's the micro details. But don't forget, the whole of this story is driven by the purpose of redemption that God has long been forecasting. Starting back at the beginning of the Bible, when man fell into sin, God forecasted that the seed from the woman, who would be Jesus, would come to crush the head of the serpent. But when he crushed the head of the serpent, the serpent would bite his heel and he'd be bruised. That's the cross. The cross crushes Satan, but in the process, Messiah is bruised. Jesus, with purpose, is entering Jerusalem to fulfill that. Later, the whole of the sacrificial system, later in the biblical record, is laid out. Its prototype happens at the day of the Exodus, or the day of the Passover in particular, before the Exodus. What happened? God says, take a a lamb, slay the lamb, and put the blood on the doorposts. And then when the the, the angel of death came over, anyone covered by the blood of the lamb would be saved. So in the time in Egypt, when God's bringing them out of Egypt, redeeming them from Egypt, he's teaching of the spiritual redemption that would come which is greater than the physical one. The people get confused a lot. They keep thinking in terms of physical release from oppression. But the picture from the Exodus, that's the picture of the sacrifice of Christ, is always greater than just simply physical release or liberation. What we have is a picture of the freedom that they gain from their sins. And that happens back in the time of the Exodus, around the Passover. Jesus enters Jerusalem the same time all the lambs are being brought and the annual day of atonement, yet he will be that lamb. So the purpose is redemption. The details are still considered in every way, every way, shape, and form. And you see it there in the story. Of course, we remember in Isaiah 53 how vivid the Scripture predicts years and years and years before Jesus actually comes how he would suffer. And in particular, do you know that Zechariah, the prophet, who lived 150 years after Isaiah, so Isaiah is at 700 B.C., right when Babylon was taken over, Zechariah is at 520 B.C. when Babylon's waning. That powerful Babylon that's rising fell and Persia was rising. And Zechariah was given this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That particular, 520 years before Jesus actually comes and does this. The purposes of God are clearly on display with every, every decision Jesus makes, and every bit of instruction he gives. Verse 2, once again, in our passage, he said to them, go into the village. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. You know, the instructions of Jesus had to seem strange to the disciples here, but in fairness, he had said lots of strange things coming up to this point. Uh, Remember when he spit in the ground, in the mud, mixed it up, and then took it and put it in the eyes of a blind person to give them sight again? So the disciples had seen some strange things. I mean, we tell the story often so we don't think of it as strange, but imagine if you have all these people, they're hungry, they're a little bit, they're they're probably worked up at this point, worried and anxious, where are they going to eat? It's just things were getting rough. And he says to this little boy, bring me your loaves and fishes and I'll feed everybody. I mean, that's an odd thing to say, but the disciples saw him do it. 
He saw what he did as a result. He went to sleep in a boat when it seemed like everybody was going to die in a storm. He told people to roll away the stone from a tomb of a person who had been dead for several days. These are strange things that the, peop- that the disciples in particular had seen. So now, when he tells them to do this, they trust him. And here's a bit of a lesson for us. We've seen what God has done in our lives, corporately and then individually. We can all account for the ways in which God has sustained us, even through very unwise things, sinful things that we have done. Yet he upholds us, and he still controls the details, and he drives the purpose in our lives. So when he tells us to do something in his word, we could trust that. Even if people around us, say the world around us, thinks what you Christians think is, is it's out of date, it's antiquated, it's ancient, it's not evolved enough, it's not smart enough, we should know that even if it seems strange to the world, if God says to do it, we ought to obey it rather than man. That's sort of what we see on display here as he tells them something awfully strange. We see it in a much bigger way every day as we follow his word. God's word always has purpose. God doesn't do anything without a divine reason, and he doesn't instruct anything that is meaningless or frivolous. With that, we learn something else from the text. Look at verse 7 down to verse 10. Here, again, Palm Sunday, an illustration of how our view of things are skewed. I just displayed a little bit of the purpose behind what Jesus did. You know some of the Bible backdrop for it, so you know it. But the people who are watching it had mixed ideas about what was happening. We know this by what's described in what they say. Uh, Even though we think that we understand the reason for certain events, we often actually have a very limited perspective on the truth. Is that not true? Even spiritual people, uh, the reaction of the people show this. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. So right away, their reaction with this animal that had never had any, anyone ride on it or anything carried on it, it was, its first ride would be for something special, something precious. So they put their cloaks on it. This is a picture of something that had been done in antiquity. An animal never been ridden before. Put your cloaks on it. So whatever would be on it would be worshipful or worthy of the honor of riding on something that pure. And so they got that right away. They understood this. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. So there's an expectation about who Jesus is by the way they act concerning his sitting on this, on this donkey. And he sat on it. He didn't say no, by the way. He did As he said he would, he sat on it because he had purpose, even though their view of it was probably not the same as his. He had a much bigger, better plan than they had. Their plan is Jesus is special. He's powerful. People are starting to follow him. Rome's taking note. Maybe he's going to confront Caesar. Finally, we're going to have a judge come to Israel again and save us, a judge who will take the throne and be king. Verse 8, it continues. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. That's important. They're talking right now. Verse 10, blessing is coming, or blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So, you see their expectations. Now, what they're saying isn't wrong, even on a surface level. He deserves worship. He deserves special care. We should bow down before him. He should be noted by everybody. He is in the line of King David. He can save. I mean, we agree with it all, but you know and I know that what they're thinking isn't exactly that. They have a different idea. 
They thought Jesus was entering Jerusalem as the Messiah King right there and now. The people thought it was time for Jesus to confront Caesar. Their actions depict a people who were coronating a warrior ruler more than just one who was coming to lay his life down first. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks. Done for royalty. You know, Jesus here is almost viewed like an Old Testament judge and a king together. Remember the judges, how they function in Israel? When Israel was oppressed by a foreign nation because of their sin, God would raise up a judge. Maybe their thinking, their expectation, that Jesus would free them from the Romans like Ehud freed the Israelites from the Moabites. Maybe Jesus will free the Israelites from the Romans like Deborah freed the Israelites from the Canaanites. Jesus would come to do that. Maybe Jesus would free the Israelites from the Romans like Samson freed them from the Philistines. Or maybe like King David so many times delivered them from the nations around. Verse 9 shows they have a view like this And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now we know they had this view because they're basically quoting Psalm 118 from David. David says there, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord. We pray, give us success. This is Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. My guess is, however, while they're thinking, Hosanna, save us now, I don't think they're probably tying together all of Psalm 18, which concludes with, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Remember, when Isaiah prophesied the coming of Christ, he sees this one big picture of Jesus' accomplishment. And the people are stuck on the temporal side of it, not acknowledging the need for the payment for sin. Psalm 18 predicts this, But their view of the thing is skewed. And here's the secondary point. We can often think we know by looking or observing what God intends to do. The promise is that whatever he intends to do is better than you thought. Now you may not think that at the moment when your expectations are dashed or when it doesn't happen or you don't get the deliverance like you thought you would get temporarily. Be sure that the long-term deliverance God promises is far greater than anything he would give you now temporarily. We see this displayed in the, in the people who are first watching Jesus come by what they say. Save now, they say. You know, it's confusing to the, to the people often, especially the closest to Jesus, the disciples. What, why did he do what he did? Uh, and we know that they're confused by Jesus' priorities often because you remember when the disciples, um, they shooed little children away who wanted to, have time with Jesus. They, they didn't understand how Jesus came for the least of these in that fashion. They were thinking in those terms already that he was going to be some big deliverer. He didn't have time for little children, and that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus thought. Remember how they would argue with each other? 
the disciples would about who would be first in the kingdom when Jesus took his place at the throne. They seem to envision Jesus overthrowing Roman oppression. They, they seem to see Jesus as one who will restore the Jewish kingdom like it was in the days of David. They seem to be limited by a view of temporary things and can't see beyond their time. And do you see how for them at that time, that would be awesome. It would be tremendous. It would be unimaginable for them to go from under the thumb of Rome to be like they were in the days of David. Yet, that's nothing compared to what God actually had planned through Christ. So again, our plans are never, never, ever as great as God's actual will. Our view of things is tremendously skewed. On the surface level, some might have been thinking Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and grant the nation of Israel some restored status or world prominence. On the real level, on the deeper level, Jesus was coming to pay for the sins of many so that they could have eternal life in God's everlasting kingdom far better than their best idea. On the surface level, maybe you have some plans you have some expectations, you have some hopes, something about your life that you uh, think would be best if it went in a certain way. Just know that God's will is better than your expectations or your plans, your hopes. I'm not saying don't plan, but as it says in the Proverbs, man plans, but God directs the path. Our view of things is skewed. We should be humble about that. We only know so much. If the word of God doesn't say it explicitly, a lot of times it's conjecture, isn't it? We do our best, but we should humbly realize Whatever it is will be better as God directs it than when we scheme or we try to figure something or we try to plan. The last verse in the text before us, verse 11. I don't know if it strikes you as kind of, kind of unusual, a little bit funny when you read it at first. Like it's, if you don't understand the backdrop of it, it would seem strange. Verse 11 says, he entered Jerusalem. So after this, all this effort outside the, the city, looking down, telling him we're going to get this colt, we're going to do this thing, people react the way they do, they go in. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. That's not a little thing. I mean, the temple's a huge public place with a lot of people. It's very official. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. He left. He went right back out. Didn't say he went back out in the cult, just walked out, left. Even looking at this, we could misinterpret. Remember, the big picture here. His plan is better than anything that we could scheme That action, as simple as it is, tied up literally centuries of forecasting and movement by God to make this day, this moment, this activity from Bethphage down to the temple, all of that was wrapped up in centuries of prophecy. Now, don't turn there, but just listen and you'll see how this flows. In the book of Genesis, Moses writes Genesis by the inspiration of the Spirit, and he records things that happened before his time. He records the life of Joseph, for instance. And remember when Joseph is ready to, he's in Egypt, all of Israel's been saved, at that time just a small group of people, his brothers and his just his family. They then grew in Egypt to two million before they come out with Moses. But Genesis ends with the picture of Joseph going in to Egypt. Listen to what it says, and this is about something that happened in 1800 B.C. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, it says in Genesis 49, nor the ruler staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, 
and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There's a forecasting in the book of Genesis about something that would happen 1,800 years ahead. Then we get to the book of Leviticus, which is written about the exact time of Moses' life, 1400 B.C., 400 years later. Remember, Abraham and Moses didn't sit around chatting. 400 years are between these two. And here Moses writes, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. It was understood that this use of these leafy branches, like what we have here, would display God in his kingship. That's 1,400 years before Jesus comes. Then, of course, King David says in Psalm 118, Hosanna, save now. He wrote that in 1000 B.C. Later, in the book of 2 Kings, which records the, the life of many of the kings of Israel, when Jehu was basically coronated king, 900 B.C., 900 years before Jesus, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see, these are all pictures of the king of Israel, the savior of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one to be worshipped. Zechariah, or excuse me, Isaiah, you should know well by now, 700 years before Jesus came. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Then, 520 B.C., 150-some-odd years after the time of Isaiah, Zechariah says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now, with all that backdrop, and there's more, but with that, now look at verse 11 again. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, It was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I can't say with direct certainty because the Scripture doesn't lay it out this clearly. But when he looked around at everything, could we not surmise that that look was with satisfaction that all had been accomplished and the sacrifice was now about to take his place? In the book of Revelation, it forecasts into the consummation of everything. And listen to what John writes in Revelation. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Think of the expectations that people had that day. Then think of what God was really accomplishing. Isn't this true? God's plan is better than anything we could scheme. God's plan quite simply is the best. Again, in conclusion, the first level of the story communicates to us the significance of Jesus' entering Jerusalem. It's his last time before the crucifixion. He's fulfilling the many prophecies that bind his entry, you might say, so that we know he's the true Messiah who can take away our sins. Connected to the particulars of this entering of Jerusalem is the reality of what he's going to do there. He was going to lay his life down for his people. Our redemption is specially tied to that historic event. It's not just a picture with a moral to it. It accomplished exact redemption for us. It had to happen for us to be saved. That's the, fi- the, the, the high level. But also, there's another 
way that this account informs and impacts us. It teaches us something of the difference between our expectation and God's plans. The people of Israel for many, many centuries had a certain messianic expectation, and it was never big enough. Jesus' mission was greater than any of their ideas or their expectations or even their hopes. Jesus himself was better than anyone could have expected. The people in Jesus' day also had certain particular expectations about what he would do, about God's plan for Jesus, which looked so ghastly to the disciples. They didn't want to hear it when Jesus would bring it up. But his plan was far greater than any political overthrow a person could make. Jesus overthrew sin, death, hell, and the grave. This is something that should comfort us about our expectations and God's plans. What are your dreams? What are your expectations? What do you imagine yourself, your family, people you love doing in five years, 10 years, 15 years? What specific hopes do you have? What motivates you? I would submit to you this day that our hopes and our expectations are often skewed, even sometimes wrongly motivated. Many times our hopes are self-driven or self-orbiting. Much of the disappointment we experience in our life is because of unfulfilled hopes or expectations. We're looking for something that we believe is the ideal rather than resting in God's plan for us. This is another reminder of our need just to be humble before God about whatever he's doing in our life. For all the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus teaches us, it teaches us about human expectations and God's plan. Just like Martin Luther said, Everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Where We are reminded afresh, God's plan is always better than our aims and our expectations. Yes, God's plan, brothers and sisters, is best. And you can rest in that because who promises it? Let's close in prayer. Father, we have once again pondered the sacred story of Jesus' appearance in Jerusalem that final time. He had forewarned several times before this that he would suffer and die there. But he would do so not to set up a rival kingdom to Caesar. Instead, he came as a king who would be crowned with thorns and throned on a cross and hailed as the chief of fools, at least by the people who watched and mocked. Lord, we see his entrance and how it points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowd, one that is more powerful than any Davidic any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the Roman Empire. We gather the irony of the people's cry, Hosanna. They surely meant one thing by saying, save us. The irony is that Jesus provided something far better than freedom from earthly oppression. He saved us from our sins, not just for today and tomorrow, but for everlasting. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let us together respond in our hymn of response to 261, a fitting hymn that asks the question and answers it as well. 261, what wondrous love is this? Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders come to prepare the table.